0: Our country is in the process of rewriting our laws, our constitution, uh, so many different things in terms of how our, our uh, laws are applied and uh, how they work. Many of the laws of this nation in the past were designed uh, based upon the principles of the Puritans. Uh, we talked today about holiness and for the, uh, the Puritan people uh, holiness was, was extremely important and most of our laws uh, formerly were based upon many of the uh, Puritan principles. And so we, uh, we see those changing now uh, in our culture. Now when I use the term Puritan, I have to wonder what comes into your mind. Maybe the Mayflower? Uh, if, if you know anything uh, you know about history, uh, you might even think of Thanksgiving, uh, the original Thanksgiving and the things that went on there. But what about the people that are dressed in black clothing? When you think of, of Puritans, you think of them you know, dressed in black, uh, not smiling. Uh, they don't play games. They don't have any fun. Much of what you read in history books and and, and what you uh, see, much of that comes from a view that serious religious people are anti-fun. That we do not enjoy life. That we are a people that don't smile, that are always negative, that are always against things. We are a dour people. I hope you don't think of me that way. (laughs) But there's a more realistic view of the Puritans. It's seen here in the second picture. Notice that instead of black clothing, they have colorful clothing. You see, the pictures that you used to see or that you're used to seeing of the, uh, of the Puritans are their Sabbath dress. On Sundays, they dressed in dark clothing. Uh, they did so because Sabbath was a serious time for them. They took their religion seriously. They took their worship of God seriously. Sundays were a day for meditation, a day for prayer a day for gathering together to know the Lord, uh, to learn, to be a holy people, uh, to walk with Him. It was not a day for games. It was not a day for pleasure so much, earthly pleasure. However, the rest of the week, the Puritans lived like everybody else, not in sinful ways, but in terms of, of life. They laughed, they played games, they dressed in colorful clothing. But they lived a holy life, and they believed in holiness. I titled this sermon today, Can Christians Drink Wine? Because Paul, in a sense, uh, addresses that in this passage. But also because it's a question that throughout the centuries has been raised. Now, I realize, you know, most of you guys come from New York or Brooklyn. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a silly question. If I ask you, you know, can Christians drink wine? You'll look at me like, what? Well, of course we can drink wine. I mean, why are you even asking that question? Right, Jackie? Yeah, right. I mean, what's the issue? Well, you know, I have a, an issue with that. And even the Puritans, known for their holiness, had no problem with alcohol. It might surprise you to know that the number one cost for a pastor's ordination service was beer. <laughs> That's true. Right? They had no problem with alcoholic beverages. They had no problem with enjoying the, uh, the various wines or, or whatever else. And they would ask the same thing that a New Yorker might ask, what's the issue? Why do you see this as, as a problem when Jesus drank wine? Matter of fact, didn't John 2 tell us that, that Jesus not only that he drank wine but that he created wine for people to drink? So what is the issue? Yet many Christians, like myself, who grew up in the holiness churches and the Wesleyan and, and Methodist churches, Pentecostal churches, oppose the drinking of alcohol. The Wesleyan denomination that I grew up in, that I belonged to for a number of years, not only didn't permit the drinking of any alcoholic beverages, but if you worked, for a brewery or you worked for a wine shop or uh, you know, some kind of alcohol distribution center, you couldn't be a member of the church. A number of those denominations came into being during what in this country is known as the temperance movement. It then morphed into the prohibition movement, which led to uh, prohibition, all alcohol being prohibited uh, to be made in the United States. And the reason for it was they saw the devastation of alcoholism, of uh, people being overly drunk. And the churches took a stand, first as temperance, and then, as I said, ultimately moving into prohibition. The church in general, has a responsibility for standing up in our community for the things that are righteous and good for the community, even for those that are not Christians, but that we know what is good and what is right. Our issues today include the ongoing issue of alcoholism. Certainly a large percentage of people in the United States have a problem with alcohol. But we also have the opioid crisis, the drug addictions that are added to that issue. And then there's the abortion scourge. A million babies being aborted in this country each year, brought on by Roe versus Wade and the Equality Act that is now just passed the House of Representatives. If you're not familiar with the Equality Act, the Equality Act allows Uh, individuals, transgender individuals and others to uh, use the bathroom of their choice. Women using men's bathroom, men using women's bathrooms, depending on how you feel on that particular day. Not quite that easy, but there. And then there's the child gender therapy that is part of the Equality Act that says that we should be uh, teaching our children that their gender is fluid. And so if they feel like being a girl and they're a boy, they're born in a male body, why not let them be a girl? And even pay for sex change. That's what our government, at least half of it, the House of Representatives it has to go to, it's gone to the Senate, That's what they just passed as part of our nation. It's going to be in your schools. It's going to be in your businesses. It's going to be in the entertainment areas of this nation. We need the Puritans back. (laughs) We need a, a restoration of holiness. The church needs to stand against these catastrophic activities and laws. We can't overstate the issues or overreact to them, but we must react and we must speak out. One of the the problems with the prohibition movement was prohibition. If it had stayed as a temperance movement, it might have had a longer-lasting effect. Temperance being drink in moderation versus getting drunk. Prohibition overstated the fact, and it was hard to back up biblically and spiritually and historically. This is Paul's concern when we come to our text, here at the end of chapter 14. Paul is concerned with, on the one hand, the church taking its stand within its community, but on the other hand, overstating the issues. And trying to force, particularly within the church, Force us into uh, fitting a certain mold or a certain way of thinking. We need a balance. As the theme of this passage states, choose to build up the kingdom of God, don't tear it down. That's really what these four verses are all about. Choose to build up the kingdom of God. Don't tear it down by the way that you interact with one another within the body of Christ and how we choose to do that. And so as we look through these verses, I want us to to, to dig into this passage. And I want you to see that, in a sense, what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a series of contrasts. What the church should do and what it should not do when we're dealing with the issues both within the community and within the body of Christ. And so as we examine the text first, I want you to, to, to notice that you need to avoid destroying faith. Paul is concerned that when we overstate things or when we seek to, to establish you know, our own freedoms or our own ideas or our own opinions on others within the body of Christ, that we will destroy the faith of individuals, that we will undermine what they believe. And so in these verses, from verse 20 to verse 23, we have Paul addressing that issue. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been on the receiving end of, of somebody verbally attacking you. There aren't too many people in life that could say, no, I've never had that happen to me. How do you feel when that happens? You go, oh, cool. Come on, attack me all the more. No. It hurts. Especially if what the person is saying isn't true. We, 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 We feel it within. Well, our text, warns us about that kind of destructive speaking and acting within the church. Let's look at the first part of verse 20. It says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Well, what is this work of God that he's talking about? He's talking about sanctification in the life of individuals. The Holy Spirit is at work within us. When we become a believer, when we have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to us, comes within us, and the Holy Spirit is is making us holy. He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. We we learned that in our memory verses in Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit is at work changing us and transforming us. When you try to make people fit your image rather than to fit in Christ's image, we are undermining the work of the Holy Spirit and destroying their faith. And so, notice how you need, then, to choose to be committed, but not commanding. Committed to what you believe is true, but not commanding that everybody has to fit your way of thinking. From the moment that you were born again, the Holy Spirit began an eternal work in you to bring you to the place where you reflect Jesus Christ in your life here on earth and then you enter into eternity with him. As you grow in your faith, you commit to certain doctrinal and practical truths. That's what the book of of Romans is all about. Remember the first 11 chapters, doctrine, and then these verses chapter 12 through chapter 16. How do you live out that life practically? And so we we come to understand those doctrines, we come to understand those practical truths, and we become committed to those. But put yourself into the, 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 the place of a Jew in Rome in the first century. All their lives, they've been committed to the Mosaic law, to to following that law. With the coming of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, the the old covenant way of following the Mosaic law is is disappearing. It's changing in regards to what foods you can eat, how you interact with with the, the food that was offered to idols, or to clean and unclean types of uh, of foods. And and so they're caught in this. All their life they've been trained to think, this is what God's word says. This is what the, the, the covenant, our covenant relationship with God is based upon these things. The Jews had held up, as we said in Sunday school, they'd held Daniel up. And they said, look at how Daniel lived in the midst of his culture but would not become conformed to eating the foods and drinking the things that had been offered to idols. And now all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. And he declares all foods clean. You can eat these foods, you can drink the the, the wine, and don't ask where it came from. God gave it to you, eat it, enjoy it. And so Paul reminds the church about that here in this passage, in verse 20. He says, everything is indeed clean. Jesus had made that statement. Everything, all the foods are now clean. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You see, those old habits die hard. The the things that, that we are taught, whether they are fully biblical or not, Whether we fully understand them or not, it's hard for us to shift away from the things that we've been taught. Some in the Jewish community still had difficulty accepting these new concepts that they could eat wherever. And so their conscience would bother them. The new freedom that other Jews, however, felt, when they had been trained under Paul and they'd been equipped by Paul, it made them want to shout from the rooftops. Free at last! We can eat whatever. We're free. And so you had this conflict, this this issue between two Jewish, in a sense, factions. The strong, who understood the freedom that Christ had given. Those that were a bit weaker in their understanding as they still felt controlled by the old covenant laws. However, those that had that freedom, though they could be committed to understanding that freedom, were not commanded that they had to eat whatever. It was a choice. You can or not. There was only one command that God had given in terms of eating, That command was love, not love your food, you know, I love steak or I love this or I love that. No, now that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about love of one another. And so that love of one another would guide what we do and how we act. For instance, because I am a Christian, I'm free in Christ, because I know I have the promise of eternal life, because I also know that I have a ton of antibodies. <laughs> that's what they t- doctor no, that's what they told me. I can go without a mask. I can't get COVID and I can't give it. But even if I could, I still have the freedom to choose whether I wear a mask or not wear a mask. I have that freedom to do that. I'm committed to the truth that before God, I may choose to wear a mask or not wear a mask without affecting my relationship with God in Jesus Christ. But I also know that God does not command me to either wear a mask or not wear a mask. I am free to choose, so how will I choose based upon how others are affected by my wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? That's how I choose. I am committed to the truth before God, I can choose whether I do or not, but I do not make my liberty a mandated command for me or for others. I take love as the command. But notice then that you also have to choose to be Christ-like, not correct. Now, what do I mean by that? It doesn't mean that we can be incorrect as Christians, but that even though I have a correct view of something, if my pushing that on others makes me not love them as Christ loves them, then my being correct is being incorrect. The eternal Son of God had a choice whether to come into this world and be our Savior. The Bible says that he made that choice in Philippians chapter 2. He could have chosen not to pollute himself with our corruptness, not to take on human form, not to humble himself, he had that choice. Out of love for his cosmos, the Son of God, entered into this world, and he took on that human form, and he humbled himself, and he went to the cross and became a sacrifice for our sins. If he could make so great a choice to suffer and die at a great cost to himself, who are we to think that we don't need to suffer a little for him. Lockdowns do not work. As New York, California, and Illinois have shown. But what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, in verse 21, Paul writes... It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, I want to point out something here. He's talking about brothers. He's talking about within the church. He's not talking about how the world is going to react. He's talking about how those of the family of God are going to react. We have less concern about how the world is going to react unless somehow, you know, my doing something is going to keep me from being able to witness to them effectively. But the main concern here is, what am I doing and how am I acting in a way that affects my brothers and sisters in Christ? And that is what we need to consider as we're looking at Romans 14. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I want you to hear me on this. I do not trust our government. I don't trust them when it comes to COVID-19 in particular, whether they're just incompetent or whether they are being purposefully misleading, I can't tell you that. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Wear two or three masks. Well, which is it guys? If you don't know, How are we supposed to know? If you're changing your minds constantly, how are we supposed to trust what you're saying? Since there's no scientific data to show that wearing a mask slows down the disease and it's spread, and certainly in those states that I just mentioned where the lockdowns are so severe, they have a greater spread than in other states that don't have that, how are we supposed to know? It's kind of crazy. Schools remain closed, but bars, casinos, gyms, massage parlors, they can be opened. What is our government doing? Churches must uh, limit the number of people that we have in our church and make sure that we are social distancing. But the house of representatives with its 435 representatives can all be present at one time without the social distancing and some wear masks and some don't get the vaccine. But once you get the vaccine, you still have to wear a mask and still have to social distance because we really don't know whether the vaccine is going to be effective the way that we say it's going to be effective. The government doesn't know what it's talking about. It it knows nothing. But how does the church respond to the government? How does the church respond within the church to the government? How do we handle this? It's better to be Christ-like than to be correct. Since wearing a mask doesn't violate any of God's commandments then don't cause your brother or sister to stumble by saying, I'm correct. I know what's right and what's wrong. If it's going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, wear a mask or two or three. I'm serious. When you are with others who feel safe, don't wear a mask. And when you're with those who feel threatened, wear a mask. And when you're with people that you're not sure, err on the safe side for their sake. That's just one issue of many that we face in terms of making decisions. Are we going to be Christ like? or are we going to be correct? Because the Pharisees tried to be correct, but they were not Christ-like. And they destroyed the faith of many. I would love to see every Christian be fully mature in their faith. That maturity is not shown, but why you can or you cannot do, it is shown by how you love your neighbor and how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's maturity. Maturity includes biblical knowledge because you can't truly love your neighbor, and you can't truly love one another if you don't have a solid biblical foundation. If you don't know the biblical doctrines and you don't know the biblical practice, as the scripture lays it out for us, you can't really be mature and you won't act mature. And since this passage talks about those who are strong, those who are weak, and how they interact with each other, we need maturity. But maturity is not measured by that knowledge. Maturity is measured by the application of that knowledge in love. Notice how Paul then points out how you need to approve a deeper faith by your love. You prove what it is to walk in Christ, not by forcing others to fit into your mode of thinking, but by leading people into a deeper and greater walk with Christ. Obviously, the government did not like what I said. They affect even the pipes in the building. Well, as we look at the zeal of the Pharisees, we can see a distinction between what it means to live Christ-like and what it means to say, I have the correct view, and you have to fit my view. They had a great deal of zeal, the Bible says, for their way of thinking. They knew the old covenant well, but they lacked the knowledge of grace, of mercy, of love. So Paul points out that you need to approve this deeper faith as you walk in Christ. He talks about it in verse 22. He says, the faith that you have. Now, he's not talking here about saving faith. I mean, it includes saving faith. You have to have saving faith to have true faith. But when he's talking here, he's not talking about saving faith, that is a right relationship with God, faith that brings you into that right relationship with God. He is talking about sanctifying faith, that is a confidence in what I do, is it glorifying God or not glorifying God? How I live, how I think, how I respond, how I interact with the people around me. Is it glorifying to God or not? And my confidence, my sense of of, of commitment to that. Do I have faith that how I am living is glorifying God? So in this passage, he wants you to think about When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you started living for Jesus Christ, and you come to a conviction about something in your Christian life, how do you live that conviction out? So notice then, you have to choose to be confident, but not confrontational. Confident that what you believe is true is true. At the same time, not using that in a way that makes you confrontational to others who may not at that point understand what it is that you're saying. The more you go around proving how strong a Christian you are, the weaker weaker your faith truly is. Uh, Let's think about Jesus Christ. The the Bible tells us that when he was here on earth, he had the the power, the ability, to call 10,000 angels to keep him from the cross. He had had that ability. He had that power. He had that authority to do so. Uh, The Bible says that there were 10,000 angels that were already seated on their stallions with their swords in hand, ready to come racing down and all they needed was a word from him, and they would have come to set him free. Now, think for a moment about that. In one night, it took one angel to destroy all the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, both animals and people. One angel, one night, in the whole land of Egypt. We also find that it took one angel in one night to kill 185,000 seasoned Assyrian soldiers. We had 10,000 of them at Jesus beck and call. Okay, that would have basically wiped out the whole human race at that time, okay. Ten thousand times one hundred eighty-five thousand. You you do the math. That's gonna get you up into billions. Okay, so he could have wiped out the whole earth with one word. Come, Erkomai. He would have said it. In, well, I wouldn't have said it in Greek. He would have said it in Aramaic or, or something. But Aramaic. But anyway, the, the point is, he could have spoken the command and the angels would have come. But that call never came, did it? Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So Jesus went to the cross without a whimper. The stronger your faith, the less you have to prove its strength. That's the point. Verse 22 states, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If you have confident assurance, let that be between you and God, that that you know that how you're living and how you're thinking is correct, that it's biblically correct, that it's sound. But let that be between you and God. Don't force it on others. Think about all the possible wrong or false teachings that the Sadducees and the Pharisees taught. Jesus could have confronted them on all of those. Every time they opened their mouth, Jesus could have said, Wrong! Here, let me tell you, the right way to do that, the right way to think, the right way to act. Jesus chose the hills that he would die on. Literally. He chose the areas of confrontation that he felt were the most serious ones, that eventually led to his death. He didn't take them on on every issue. He took them on in the illogical view of the Sabbath without undoing all the Sabbath laws yet, not until after his death and resurrection. Or that sickness came because of someone's specific sin, He dealt with that because that would undermine the whole understanding of God's character and nature. Jesus taught confidently on many topics, but he only confronted on a few. The apostles followed that same pattern. They taught biblical truths on pretty much every topic seeking to help us to to grow and and to understand God's character, his nature, and and how we're to interact and how we're to live. At the same time, they only confronted issues that they felt would destroy the body of Christ. We need to be wise, confident in our walk with God, but not confrontational in that walk with God. The prophets often lamented the fact that they had to be confronting the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Because they knew that confrontation very seldom leads to transformation. Sometimes we have to take those stands. Sometimes we have to be confrontational but let's make sure that it's on those things that matter and not on things that don't. If you consider yourself a strong Christian, prove it by controlling what you say and what you do when you're interacting with people. But notice as well that you need to choose to be consistent and not changing. When you're strong spiritually, when you have spiritual maturity, with it comes a certain sense of right and wrong, of truth and error. If someone asks you a biblical question, and you give an answer, because you're supposed to know it all. But down deep, you're not sure you're giving the right answer? Don't answer! Don't answer! We have all kinds of Christians tossing out opinions about their likes and their dislikes, what they think is right or wrong, what they feel about something. But is it based on the infallible word of God? Your opinions are going to fluctuate. The truth doesn't change. Get into the Bible, but more importantly, let the Bible get into you. Let it transform you. Let it change you. Don't tell me that you are a strong Christian if you're not doing your daily devotions, if you're not studying the Word of God on a regular basis. I don't care how much you know about theology. If you're not practicing it, if you're not living out a daily walk with God, how can you call yourself a strong Christian? The Bible has to be in you before it's going to come out of you. Your answers will be consistent and not changing when the word of God is consistently in you. Paul describes it this way in verse 22. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You see, the, the scriptures are, are are giving a warning here to the immature Christian who's getting tossed about by every wind, uh, wind of doctrine that, that comes along. If you have a sailboat and it's not anchored down to a cement pier, along comes a storm. What's going to happen to that sailboat? It's going to be tossed all over the place. If you don't Believe me, all you had to do is live through Superstorm Sandy, and then drive the Belt Parkway. For those of you who did that, you would have seen multiple boats all in the woods and the brush, and alongside the uh, edge of, of the highway, because they got picked up and tossed by the storm that came through, because they weren't tied down adequately. If we are not tied down to the word of God, we are going to be tossed around. And there are too many professing Christians that are like those boats. They're not rooted and not grounded in the word of God. And so they have opinions, but those opinions are based upon their own ideas, their own feelings. And so they're constantly shifting those positions or constantly contradicting themselves and giving harmful advice. When our foundation is sure, then we can be confident. When it is based upon the inerrant word of God, we can have confidence. Confidence that we believe, whether doctrinally, or whether practically that it is true we'll live consistently unshaken by the passing fads and fashions of our culture, of our government, and even of our church. The government's chief medical person for this pandemic, Dr. Fauci, changes his mind once a week whether he needs to or not. What he says is true today is tomorrow's medical heresy. But when Christians say to me, well, Dr. Fauci says, I don't really care. I'm not interested. But come to me and say, the word of God says, and I'll listen. Because I know the word of God is unchanging. I know that it is solid. Let me give you a few unchanging truths when it comes to this virus. God is sovereignly in control of absolutely everything. And that includes this virus. This virus cannot infect anyone that God says don't infect and it can't skip over anyone that God says do infect. God is in control. If he knows the hairs on your head, he knows how many virus bugs are hanging around in your community. Now, that does not mean that we need to be fools and just go out and walk in front of a Mack truck or go into a virus-infected area. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying God is in control. Second, not one person passes into eternity one minute before or after God has declared that they are to enter his presence. God holds the key to death and Hades. God does not want us to fear, number three what man or virus can do to us, but rather that we fear him who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, fear him, the scripture says. Number four, if God so loved, then you as his children must love your neighbor, showing mercy, grace, compassion, and loving help even if it costs you your health. Let me say that again. If God so loved, then you as his children must love your neighbor, showing mercy, grace, compassion, and loving help, even if it costs you your health. Otherwise, you're no different than the world. So, What have we seen so far? You need to avoid destroying the faith of others, you need to approve a deepening of your own faith, and finally, and quickly, you need to appraise doubting faith. Ask yourself, why am I afraid? Or, why do I doubt? Or, why am I continually changing my mind? You see, living a life that's not anchored to biblical truth is going to leave you with a lot of problems in life. We read in verse 23, But whoever has doubts... Hmm. Wasn't there one of the apostles that earned that title? It was Doubting who? All right. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. When Jesus says that he's going to the Father that the disciples know the way to the Father, it's Thomas who speaks up. How do we know the way to the Father? Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to go to Bethany to visit Lazarus, who has died. Pessimistic Thomas says, yeah, well, we might as well go with him too, because then we can die with him. Jesus appears to some of the apostles after the resurrection. And Thomas says, yeah, I don't believe that. I didn't see him. And then Jesus appears to Thomas. And in a moment, doubting Thomas becomes determined Thomas. Doubting Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. And Doubting Thomas goes on to have a great ministry and was martyred for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to move from doubting to determined. We need to to move away from this sense that, that, you know, this life has more meaning than eternal life. So notice that you may choose to be cautious, but don't be condemned. Can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? What about pork or shrimp? Those are genuine questions for a first century Christian living in Rome. Some in the church would say, of course you can. Others would caution against it. Which do you do? Paul says, if you have questions, don't. Don't eat it. Verse 23 states, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Now, the question then is not is it right or wrong to eat the food? That is not the question. In the Garden of Eden, God placed a prohibition tree and said, Don't eat the fruit of that tree. All right? What kind of fruit was it? Doesn't matter. Eve let us know that the fruit was good. She said it was good to to look upon, it It was good to to taste. So so she let us know that it was a good fruit, whatever it was, could have been pineapple. Uh, Maybe it was grapefruit or orange or durian fruit or apple or kumquats or mango or or, or something that no longer exists. We don't have any idea. The question wasn't what kind of fruit it was, is are you going to trust God? And that's what he's saying. If if you don't believe that what you're doing is going to glorify God, then don't do it. Even if other people have the freedom to do it, it's better to be cautious than condemned. Better to limit your freedom than to cross a line of doubt. If you cannot justify an action by the word of God, then don't do that action but also notice you must choose to be convinced, not corrupted. Just because someone believes that they have a word from God, if you can't support what they say by Scripture, don't follow what they say, even if it comes from this pulpit. God says that we are to avoid doubts. He gave us a conscience to live out a life with him. Verse 23 ends with the words, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We have a conscience. And the more we align that conscience with the word of God, the safer we're going to be. But no matter what someone tells you, you have to appraise it by scripture. Can I support this? If you have do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, you don't know what I'm talking about. And I would suggest that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that you turn to him. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, and the greatest sin is not to trust in Jesus Christ. Once you trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will go to work in you, and he is going to sanctify you. He is going to work to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to do that. I can't conform you to the image of Christ. I can assist, I can help, I can share truths with you, but only the Holy Spirit can change your heart and your mind. And that's true of all of us. Let's live a loving life for the glory of God. As our conclusion states today, Joshua challenged the people of Israel to choose whom they would serve. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the idols of the nations that your fathers did, or are you going to serve the one true God? Choose this day. And he said... As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And I hope that that's what you're choosing to do today. Not to serve your opinions, not to serve your government, not to serve your culture, your ethnicity, or any of those other things. Serve the Lord. Are you choosing to serve yourself? Or are you choosing to serve your Savior? That's the question for the church today. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts. It's just too easy for us to think that we have it made, that, that, that we are the smartest Christian, that, that, that we know what's good and what's bad. Father, too often, in doing those things that we think are good, we actually undermine our own faith. And we undermine the work of the Holy Spirit, and we destroy the faith of others. Forgive us when we do so. Change our hearts so that we love you and so that we live out that goodness, that the holiness of God might be manifested in our love for one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.